Welcome to No Bugs Given, where we have honest conversations about the horse industry. Whether it's debunking common myths and looking into the science behind them or tackling the hard social conversations that we face in this industry, we get to the bottom of what matters the most, how best to care for and advocate for our horses. Today I have on the podcast my beautiful, wonderful angel, everything, because I can't think of a better job title for her, Allie. (laughs) Thanks, Maya, for having me. Happy to be back. (laughs) Allie helps me produce my podcast as well as helps me manage my social media and basically keep me a functional, organized person in the many different passions that I have um, in this business. And Allie is also an amateur and relatively new horse owner. So I found it really helpful when I'm speaking on a topic that I'm super passionate and educated on. I find it very helpful to have Allie with me because she brings a fresh perspective that helps me to break it down for those of you who are listening at home who might not have quite the science background that I do. Yeah, and like we've we've talked about this before, but I'm constantly learning, so this is helpful for me to just unpack some of these things in a little more detail. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know how much Maya loves her research, and we get to <laughs> delve into a bunch of cool studies, so excited to be here. Awesome. So this is actually going to kick off a three-part series that I'm really, really excited. We're going to go, it's basically going to be the muscle soreness series. And this first episode is going to be what actually is happening when muscles are sore and what causes muscle soreness at a biological level. Um, Because I think that that's incredibly important when we're talking about how to counteract it and how to kick it to the curb for good. The next episode is going to be why and where horses get sore. So that'll dive into um, external causes, you know, not what's happening at the biological level of the horse, um, but what's happening um, that we can kind of see and feel and touch and control. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the final episode in the series is going to be how can I help make it better? You know, what can you listening at home help your horse with muscle soreness wise? So really excited to kick this off. Let's do it. Um, All right. So I wanted to dive into what is actually happening when um, a horse is facing muscular soreness because I think that a lot of people don't really know or understanding and know or understand it and therefore their method of trying to solve it becomes very quickly misguided and it ends up in a wasted effort so that's why you know I tend to shy away from people just taking stabs at things or people necessarily constantly cycling through new gadgets before they have an understanding of the science of what's actually happening happening. Makes sense. And yeah, you want to be as informed as you can to try to prevent muscle soreness in the first place from happening. Absolutely. Muscle soreness, we all know, can be caused like macro level, you know, macro, I think of like the external forces. So, you know, like poor saddle fit, conformation, trauma, that can be caused by a lot of different things. And we all know that. But I think what a lot of people don't know is that there are actually a lot of different biological um, ways that muscles are becoming sore as well. Um, and that's basically, I break that down in my head, um, into the most common causes are number one, delayed onset muscle soreness. This is like your very classic muscle soreness. Um, if you think about like after you have a hard workout or your horse does, and suddenly they become really sore, that's what delayed onset muscle soreness is, or DOMS. And DOMS it typically occurs between 24 and 48 hours or even 72 hours after a really hard uh, workout. 
Next up, there's also muscular soreness that a lot of us have faced with, um, you know, just overall muscular tension. And I frame that in my head as fascial adhesions. Um, so, you know, just like baseline, like that might be um, from uh, like that can be caused by a lot of different things, but that might look like fascial adhesions um, that are constricting a muscle and constricting a nerve. So do you know what fascia is? A little bit, yeah. And I know it's really important to talk about because, like, we talk about in the context of addressing horse injuries all the time that a lot of people fixate on the bones of yes. the horse and not necessarily the soft tissue surrounding the bones that actually manipulates the horse's movement. So in fascia in particular, um, as I've learned, um, is the casing that kind of holds all of your muscles together in your organs. It surrounds basically every important structure in your body. Yeah. Um, however, I think you just so aptly described it as like the white peely stuff around an orange. So yeah. it, it, it acts in that way, but it also has the ability to be manipulated and like yeah. bunch up in places. And that's what I would understand a fascial adhesion to be. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you gave like a great like intro to fascia. So fascia, which you learning so much so hanging out with me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So fascia, I always tell people if you've ever prepared a raw chicken and you see the white stuff around the raw chicken, that is fascia. And there are actually different kinds of fascia. So there's superficial fascia, which is the fat, which is the layer between the skin and the muscle. So for your skin to slide around um, and not just be directly exposed um, to muscle and like just directly be sticking to muscle and for your muscles to be able to move and slide around. You know, you think about it like your hands and your arms and everything can move in all these different cool ways because your muscles move independently of your skin. Otherwise, your skin, if your skin was adhered to your muscle, you'd only be ever able to ever like make one movement. If that, you probably wouldn't actually be able to move at all. Um, next up is your deep fascia. Your deep fascia is the fascia between muscles. So around every muscle is like a fascial compartment. It like comes around the muscle and it actually allows the muscles to slide in between each other, which is something I never really thought about, right? Because if you think about it, like all most, all these muscles run alongside of each other and um, they have to be able to slide mm -hmm. to actually be able to move. That totally makes sense. <laughs> and like, like to your point, it makes sense that some of them are connected in certain places and cased so that they hold mm -hmm. their structure. Right. But then also you have to have the freedom of movement to be able to slide. You know, yes. Yeah, right. And then there's so that that's uh, superficial and deep fascia. But fascia also doesn't just exist in the muscular and the skin system. And they fascia is actually present um, at every level in the cells of your body. Um, actually, John F. Barnes, who is one of the big uh, players in the like myofascial world argues that there's no such thing as muscle there's just compartments of fascia um, and the muscle contracts but the fascia is what actually holds it together mm -hmm. um, and fascia so fascia is incredibly cool it's present throughout all the systems in our body um, and it helps to surround our organs and it basically helps everything function um, even like just a little caveat or just a little side, you know, sidebar, like endometriosis, a lot of people argue has like a fascial base because basically pain in your uterus, um, 
in the fascial adhesions in your uterus Mm -hmm. actually are traveling throughout the rest of your organs and adhering to the rest of your organs. So actually, there are MFR practitioners for humans who actually treat endometriosis because of the internal fascial adhesions. It's incredibly interesting stuff. And that's also why you see some um, human chiropractors do internal fascial release on mares because they get an ovary um, moved or an ovary with a lot of adhesions and they actually can go in and release a lot of pain. God, that's so wild. And like, it it totally makes sense, especially with the uterus and the surrounding structures. The uterus is a giant muscle. So like, why wouldn't you massage it the way that you would work on any other part of the muscular system? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess to backtrack a little bit before, because I think I kind of like skipped a section. What fascia really unfortunately likes to do is create adhesions. Mm -hmm. So fascia is like this sticky, it's not a substance that gets circulation. You know, it's very collegious. It's very um, like, has a lot of collagen fibers in it. And it has, um, and what it really likes to do is uh, when there's any sort of trauma or injury or pain, it likes to get dehydrated and and form an adhesion. And this is like basically everything else that we kind of don't like in the body system, a way of the body protecting itself. So for example, if your horse gets kicked, you know, they get kicked in their hind end, that hind end might hurt really badly. So the body might go, the fascia around that hind end might adhere and tighten to kind of support the hind end. But then suddenly a month later, the horse can't really hardly move its hind end even after the initial injury has walked away because fascia is not alive the same way like muscles are and skin is. Um, So it's not as able to like address its own issues. So, you know, the other thing about fascia is it's all connected. So it kind of surrounds super, the the superficial fascial layer surrounds our entire body like a sweater. Um, But when there becomes a fascial adhesion, it actually kind of creates a pull. And so you can imagine it tends to pull throughout the entire system, even into the deep fascia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, that like the best example of this, I say, is like if you hurt your lower back, how often, like you personally, Allie, if you've ever hurt your lower back, has that ever gone up to your shoulder and even into your neck? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's fascia. And that's also different compensatory patterns, but you can often track, you know, as a body worker, you can also often track a fascial adhesion throughout the body. Um, It's just, it's really fascinating stuff. And I agree with you. You know, I think that to go back to the uterus, yes, the uterus is a muscle. And I think that so many more women and riders would probably be benefited from more like uh, pelvic floor work and releases. Um, it's not something I actually know a lot about. I'd love to have someone on the podcast who could talk about it, but very, very cool stuff. Fascia is just, it explains so much about the body. But then even deeper fascia, so deeper than just the fascia that encases the muscles, there are um, layers of uh, fascia around the nerves. That's wild. Is there a reason why there are layers of fascia around the nerves? Is it to protect them? It's like the, I think of fascia and I think some biologists would argue this. And I do, I would say I'm biased because of my background. I think of fascia as like the base connective tissue of the body. Um, You know, you could also argue like collagen is the base connective tissue and fascia is a form of collagen, but it all behaves relatively similarly. Mm -hmm. Um, So nerves have to move throughout the body, right? Like that's the whole point is there's, you know, 
your, the whole point of nerves is to feed information to your spinal cord and then to your brain so that you can interact with the world around you and even interact with your own body. But they have to slide around in your body to be able to function. Mm-hmm. And to do that, a lot of the time they have to go through a muscle. So, like, for example, the best, the thing I see the most commonly as a human body worker is something called piriformis syndrome. And this is actually something that I see a version of this in horses. And it's so fascinating. I could talk about it all day. Um, Have you ever experienced any sciatic pain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 80%, studies have found 80% of what most people think is sciatica, um, which is radiating pain from your lower back that goes down to your leg. What they have found in research 80% of what people think is sciatica is actually something called piriformis syndrome. And that's because the sciatic nerve actually travels through this little muscle in your hip um, that um, likes to get really tight when you're sitting or you're walking or you're doing hip extensions, shout out riders a lot. Um, Basically, this little muscle that's very deep in your pelvis gets or deep in your hip um, gets tight and compresses over the sciatic nerve and effectively mimics sciatica. I have had literally countless human massage therapy um, clients who have told me they have sciatica and I have been able to fix it in like five or 10 minutes. That is so wild. And honestly, like it makes a ton of sense that if the fascia is going through the muscles to get from point A to point B, you're not thinking about all of the connective tissue in between. You're only thinking about where you're experiencing the pain. Yes. And that can be, I mean, there's a ton of reasons why you can experience pain. Right. Um, But in particular, I think about my husband who has sciatica and I'm like, hmm, could we fix this in five minutes through massage? (laughs) You probably could. I can't like guarantee it. And I can't guarantee that like if I work on it for five minutes, it's never going to come back. Right. But there have been, I mean, I've had really incredible results and horses experience something pretty similar in their sacrosciatic ligament Mm -hmm. area. Um, and I do the same thing. I release it. It makes a huge difference through their lower back. It's just, it's fascinating stuff. Um, you know, we have similar, as like MFR practitioners, a lot of us have had similar results um, working on people with carpal tunnel syndrome. Like they've entirely avoided a surgery because they've just gotten a few sessions of MFR and um, been able to release the nerve that's being compressed in carpal tunnel syndrome. It's it's really fascinating, and I wish more people would explore it as an option before immediately assuming that a surgery or a bone intervention needs to take place. A thousand percent. And, like, again, I'm just going to repeat this idea, but it's <laughs> like, why aren't we talking more about how we're manipulating the soft tissue mm-hmm. before we jump to really, like, extreme circumstances like my husband, for example, had um, a slipped disc when he was younger and they were immediately like, you can either have lots of physical therapy or you can have surgery. And he was like, absolutely. I do not want to have surgery on my, my like lumbar spine, whatever, you know, it's just. And the scary thing about slipped disc injuries is I've had so many, um, and doctors like, don't hate me for this. Like I, I like refer most of my clients to doctors and I won't work and I will never tell a client, like, don't listen to your doctor. Listen to me. I just always say like, why don't you explore the least invasive option first? Right. Because I have had a lot of clients who come to me after they got a surgery and have said the surgery made it worse. 
Yeah. And, and it happens. It's And it's very common. It's very sad. I guess one of the questions I have, too, and just animals generally, right, like humans and horses in this case, like with surgeries, do fascial adhesions tend to happen more in those areas because they're trying to compensate for the healing process? And, like, this is a I think so. Question. So, yeah, I actually – I have always wondered – um, if we went in with horses with who have suffered from colic surgery, I've always wondered, like, do those horses, for example, have an, a higher instance of kissing spine because mm -hmm. their abdominals are so weakened and they have so many fascial adhesions through their abdominals, it makes it hard for those muscles to function and then therefore support the back and then therefore the back sags. God. And then therefore the spine, the vertebrae compress and then therefore kissing spine happens. I don't know. I mean, I would love to know. I'm, I would like, there's, I mean, if I could like wave a magic wand and get a million dollars of research, I would do that. And I do res research on, uh, fascial adhesions for kissing spine horses. I think it'd be so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I like, it would be really fascinating to see if prolonged MFR treatment. And by the way, MFR is myofascial release. Yes. We talk a lot about myofascial release <laughs> here, but for the <laughs> listener who may not know, and we've thrown that around a couple of times. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to see if myofascial release over time could help really in a therapeutic way to resolve those issues entirely, mm -hmm. or at least, you know, get them to a point where they're serviceably sound. Right. Um, Ooh, serviceably sound. That's like a hot word. That is People a, don't like that word right now. <sighs> I, I'm not against it. I think, well, I don't, I, I don't even know if I should say, I think if a experienced horse person who's telling me that a horse they love and care for is serviceably sound, I want to know what they, that means to them. Right. Like, I think it means something different, you know, the horses I know who are in a lesson program who are living on BU and like you see them crawl around and like they're clearly in pain and you're like, can you just let the horse be done? But the trainer is like, well, they're serviceably sound. You know, that's a totally different meaning from like a horse that like is 23 and has worked very hard their whole life and is like tended to for their every need and needs 10 minutes to warm up. You know, it's a, you know, it's, it's just a different Totally. Yeah. Hot yeah. button word. Because, Hot button word. <laughs> yeah, no. And in, like, in the way that I'm using serviceably sound is a horse that is comfortable yeah. doing some level of work and you yeah. don't push them past that point of comfort right. or like into discomfort, right? Like you yeah. really manage them in a way that like, like there are so many horses I know who had very long successful show careers who are now no longer sound enough to compete at that level. However, because they love it so much, right. you know, they want to do it and you see them when they go, they're like, this is so fun. And they want, they're trying to push themselves harder than like you as the owner feel like you should. Yeah. Um, th that was what I like, just yeah. for clarification, that's <laughs> yeah, what no. I mean by serviceably yeah. sound, like to your horse's level of comfort and like giving them a quality of life that they want and deserve. Yeah. Because I do believe that if you don't, uh, if you don't, you, I believe that you rust out before you wear out with us. And I think that that's true with people and horses. And, you know, someone else DM'd me. I thought it was awesome. You know, they said motion is lotion, you know, when we were hey. talking about like older horses. And I was like, God, like, I think my mom has said that to me oh. before. And I was like, it's so true, though. Like, I think a lot of these older arthritic horses um, 
get so much life out of their years packing around someone a little bit younger before instead of just immediately retiring from the upper levels taking like a step down and then another step down throughout their life it seems that seems to really help a lot of them mentally and physically yeah a thousand percent and I mean they're horses they're meant to move their whole lives you know and so to give them it's not like what kind of life is it (laughs) here's another really hot button issue what kind of life is it to sit in a stall 90 percent of your life and not have well I would hope none of them are sitting in the stall 90% I mean, I of their lives. Either, yeah, but I mean, it, retired or not retired or competition horse, I hope none of them have to be in stalls that much. I, I hope so, too. I think a lot of people, you know, in the show horse world yeah. do overprotect their horses to a point. Like, and yeah. I totally understand. And that's a very nuanced issue. Oh, it's, but, a, hard, it's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you want to give them the best and make sure that they're happy and like in as much of their natural element as they can be. You know, it's, it, it's only fair, for, at least that's my opinion it's only fair that we give that back to them to the best of our ability yeah and like just listening to them and letting them tell you what you want like you know my best friend laura has an older mare who's 19 and um she's always just kind of checking in with her like mentally and physically like are are you ready to be done and dixie's like no i you know i can do a little bit more like and laura does i mean just does everything for this horse but you know when they get to a certain age and a certain level of like I mean, Dixie is not like really necessarily the example for that because she is so comfortable and she is maintained very well. But, you know, when you're facing an uphill battle with them, it is time to like be like, maybe we just do a step down and maybe maybe we do another step down, like kind of play with it. But to get back to fascia. Totally. I I would love to recap just a little bit and sum up. So we were talking about the different level, like the different layers of fascia. Yes. So if we can just bullet point through those maybe quickly. Oh, thank you. So superficial fascia, layer of fascia between your skin and muscles, Mm -hmm. deep fascia, layer of fascia between your muscles and muscles. Mm -hmm. And then I don't like, I, I, I'm trying to think, I think it's also just referred to as deep fascia when it's in your organs and when it's in around your nerves and allows your nerves to slide around within your muscles as well. Got you. Cool. That's very helpful. Yeah. Um, and then fascial adhesions can connect through any layers of those fascia. So when you're yes. dealing with treating a fascial adhesion, you are treating every, every layer of that. So sometimes that means more well, deep work and sometimes it's more surface level. <sighs> I think professional, you know, so me, Maya, like, yes, I am treating deep fascial adhesions. I think depending on what modality you're using, you may only, I think most modalities are only treating superficial fascia. Like, for example, I love cupping and scraping, but they're only treating superficial fascia. There is still a huge amount of benefit in them. I get cupped, I get scraped, I cup and scrape the occasional human client. I've scraped you, as you know. Um, there is a lot of benefit in treating the superficial fascia. Um, the deep fascia tends to come more into play with the manual therapies. And another way to activate and release deep fascial adhesions is actually exercise and stretching. Um, stretching is really like so, so good at releasing deep fascial adhesions. Can we talk about how people are not interested in stretching <laughs> and uh, why that is such a problem? <laughs> Because it is like it's such a no brainer, or at least you know, like oh we, oh oh, we, but you stretch all the time. No, I don't. And like Sorry, I, need I to know, no, I, it's a really great point. Like yeah. I know that I should stretch, and like I kind of just want to be the the martyr here. Like I don't stretch. How do you how how can we incentivize people to understand? Can I tell you a secret? Yeah, I don't stretch every day. 
but you do stretch. And I'm a massage therapist. (laughs) And I tell all my clients you need to stretch. But do I stretch the if I when I had my horse Wesley, did I stretch him every day? Yes, I did. Um, I mean, like I feel like this, like this is just like a that would like to do a deep psychological analysis of equestrians and honestly humans in general. I will say I tend to stretch for a specific reason i think it would be good for me to just stretch in general as part of my nightly routine and i did used to be more in that routine but what really when i was stretching the most in my life was when i had a lot of really deep pelvic fascial adhesions Mm -hmm. and i had i mean i really addressed a lot of um pelvic fascial adhesions and abdominal fascial adhesions um, and even like back and other fascial adhesions in my body through stretching. Um, through about like when I it was when I was in massage school and it was about around a six month period of time. Um, and then I was very consistent and a lot of my issues went away, honestly. Mm-hmm. And they haven't come back since I did that very um consistently and I was able to like really like what really able to like unwind those deep, deep adhesions. Um, but I think that I would hope that if you have a specific issue, like for example, I had an incredibly tight pelvis and back and also, I mean, just every part of my body was tight. I was just like a little brick. Um, but like, if you have a specific issue, I would encourage you to explore specific like stretching and self massage options, um, before necessarily going down an incredibly invasive route. Um, you know, my philosophy personally is to start with, especially with our horses because they can't speak to us, mm-hmm. um, to start with like the least invasive option, whatever that looks like, and then to go slowly more invasive if the least invasive options don't work. But unfortunately, I think that a lot of professionals and equestrians have been taught, and I mean, I was until I started doing what I do now. You know, I think a lot of us have been taught to just as soon as there's an issue, inject a joint, which is kind of crazy because, you know, at the first sign of trouble, you immediately go to like the most invasive and actually degenerative thing to do to them. That's not right. Like, I'm not saying I think a lot of vets are not doing that, but the vets I worked with for a long time in my life did do that. Yeah, it's so wild that we just jump to those conclusions. And I mean, like literally in every case, like I know so many people who need to have their horses hawks injected or, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, and I don't know really enough about the nuances of the hawk to know if there's like, it's, it seems like a pretty um, area where there's not a whole lot of excessive muscular tissue to maybe address. So maybe that's why it's so common to be fair. But Um, Well, I think that the question is when we are identifying um, that the hawk has pain, I'm not saying that the hawk doesn't have pain. I'm wondering if it's actually a muscle that is possibly causing the hawk to have compensatory pain. Because I think what a lot of people don't stop and realize is that the muscles move the skeleton. The skeleton doesn't move the muscles. The skeleton is essentially just a support structure to allow the muscles to contract and relax to produce movement. So if movement is, so if movement is, um, What's the word for like, so if movement is compromised, why wouldn't you look at what is actually causing the movement, i.e. the muscle, instead of immediately addressing the skeleton in the joint? A thousand percent. And I think there's a lot more we can talk about on that subject. Um, Yeah. That's a juicy subject. I want to dive into it. Sweet.
So, you know, all of that is to say um, pain can be caused in the muscle, in my opinion, by one of two things, either a fascial restriction, um, which uh, is basically where, you know, fascia in its healthy state is supposed to be really slippery. Um, And basically, you know, you can imagine that when you are um, preparing that raw chicken. If you think about that raw chicken, again, that outside of that is very slippery. Yum. (laughs) (laughs) But you can, you know, think about if that chicken breast was like sliding, it can slide against another chicken breast very well, (laughs) right? So like, that's kind of what I, (laughs) that's what she said. Oh, this is so gross. (laughs) I'm sorry. I hate preparing chicken. I won't do it anymore. It is like, well, now that I have chickens, that's a whole other level of bad. (laughs) I do like, I really actually do like chickens. Um, Me too. Yeah. They have such personality. But anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway, no, you're fine. Um, So I think just like thinking about that's what it is in its most healthy state. Um, And, but what happens when fascia goes wrong is it gets dehydrated and, and forms adhesion. So I talked about how fascia is mostly collagen, um, but fascia is made up of layers and it's kind of like a webbing around your body. And it also has a hyaluronic um, substance in it as well. So it has this more like hydrated substance. And then when a trauma or a compensatory pattern happens um, and it forms, it starts to form an adhesion, it actually gets really dry. And that's where scar tissue essentially forms. So it starts to start to dry out and um, form this adhesion and basically restricts movement. And it doesn't just restrict movement in the muscle and restrict physical movement. It actually restricts blood flow. It restricts lymphatic flow and it um, compresses over top of the nerve. And that's where the pain comes in. So not only is the fascia not working properly and allowing the horse to move, which is a big issue on its own, also there isn't good lymphatic flow, which um, basically overall means the body isn't able to heal itself um, and use that muscle and heal from exercise effectively. It also means there's lower blood flow, which means overall the health of the muscle is compromised. And if it, if the nerve is being compressed, it means that it's simulating nerve pain, or there is essentially nerve pain that simulates a much more sinister issue, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, so very quickly, something that until recently no one even really knew about or paid attention to fascia becomes um, a huge deal when we're um, addressing uh, chronic pain patterns. So it is really fascinating and it plays into that idea of delayed onset muscle soreness, right? Like the negative effects of muscle damage from whatever kind of trauma you put them through, whether that's regular exercise, there is some damage that's being incurred on the muscles, right? Correct? So it's a little bit different. So I think of DOMS as a little bit different from fascial adhesions because DOMS is more of a, it is technically caused by fascia, but not fascial adhesions. So I'm going to blow your mind. Oh, that's a, that's a good way to uh, separate them out. Okay. So they, they affect each other, but they're not, they're not necessarily. No. So fascial adhesion is like, for example, you like, tear your rotator cuff because you've been working on too many stalls. Or for example, how I tore my rotator cuff was a horse slammed me up against a wall and I like put up my hand to brace myself and I just managed to tear my subscapularis muscle. Um, 
you know, you have something like that, basically your, your body, I mean, I physically could not lift my arm. Right. Basically my body was like, oh my God, like you have no, like you are in a huge amount of pain. All this stuff is happening. So it went and it laid down, um, extra fibers and basically tried to immobilize my shoulder. So I wouldn't hurt it more. But then, you know, two years later, I still couldn't move my arm very well. But delayed onset muscle soreness is basically, I think of it as a little bit less serious, but the pain caused from delayed onset muscle soreness, we are starting to understand is caused by um, the fascia encasing the muscle. So DOMS um, is kind of what we tend to think of when we think of traditional muscle soreness. So DOMS, um, you know, let's say for example, DOMS isn't, DOMS looks like I worked out really hard and now my muscles are sore two days later, whereas fascial adhesions might look more like, oh my God, my shoulder hurts all the time because I tense my shoulders or, oh my God, my um, hip hurts because I'm a little bit uneven somehow and I'm using it incorrectly. Um, DOMS is more of the traditional athletic muscle soreness because what actually happens is basically when you're exercising, you're creating these little micro tears in your muscle fibers. And something called the lymphatic system um, or lymph fluid starts to flow to that injury site because what the lymph system does really well is bring um, healing properties like white blood cells um, and nutrients to the uh to any injury or illness, but it also really well takes waste away. And when, and one form of muscular metabolism is actually lactic acid. So for a long time, people thought that lactic acid is what caused muscle soreness because lactic acid is a product of anaerobic exercise. So anaerobic exercise is like a higher level of exertion of exercise where basically you're working so hard that your muscles can't replace the oxygen that you're using. So they turn to other forms of uh, basically food for the muscle. The byproduct of that is, is lactic acid. So basically because DOMS, um, tended to be after more um, hard physical work, people were thinking they kind of correlated the two. They thought that the cause was lactic acid. And that's why people said like, oh, massage works because it's flushing out lactic acid. Well, actually, massage works because it's flushing out lymphatic fluid, mm -hmm. um, which is helping to flush out lactic acid. But we have found that lactic acid is not what is causing the pain. What's causing the pain is the fact that basically, so you have, we let's go back to the fact that the muscle is surrounded in this little casing of fascia. So basically, because it's kind of holding and supporting the muscle. So you do these little injuries to the muscle, all this lymphatic stuff comes in. But the thing about lymph, it doesn't have a pump the way the circulatory system and blood does. It doesn't have a heart. So the only way lymph moves is either through exercise or manual therapy. Um, and manual therapy would be like massage or stretching. Um, so let's say you go for a hard run and then you go back and just sit at your desk. Well, all of that lymph has gone to your legs to bring healing properties and to repair those micro tears, but nothing is moving out of the lymph. Now, 
this lymph is collecting in your muscles, it's causing the muscle to swell and actually exert pressure on the nerves associated um, inside the muscle. So basically, because the fascial casing around the muscle isn't allowing it to move very much, the muscle is swelling and it's painful. Mm -hmm. And that's why massage is basically the most effective treatment Mm -hmm. for delayed onset muscle soreness. And that's been proven in study after study after study, because nothing moves lymph out of a muscle like massage other than possibly exercise. That's wild and makes sense. What does DOMS look like in horses after? Like, what are you looking for when you're assessing whether or not a horse is um, experiencing that delayed onset muscle soreness? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not typically seeing as a massage therapist in my experience, I'm not seeing a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness in horses in horses that get ridden consistently like four or five days a week. And like all of those rides look pretty similar. So even if like the rider is cross training, you know, for example, like the beginner novice or novice horse who has been at beginner novice or novice for a few years, and that's kind of their life, those horses don't tend to get delayed onset muscle soreness. What I see the most is either horses that are weekend warriors. So like their owners can't get out to them five days a week. And then they go for like, they basically want to make it up on the weekend. So that they go for a couple of hard rides. Um, and basically the body just isn't accustomed to it and isn't accustomed to that level of muscular metabolism. Um, then the next day, you know, a few days later, the horse might be really, really sore. You know, unfortunately the owner might not see it come into play the most because it might kind of have dispersed from the next weekend, at least a little bit, Mm -hmm. but slowly the horse is going downhill and slowly the horse is getting sore and sore, right? It can also, I see it very commonly as well in horses that work really hard. So our upper level eventers, I think there's a lot of doms. I think the race horse industry, there's a lot of doms, um, you know, show jumpers, uh, dressage horses who are working really hard. Any horse that is taken um, whose work is increased very dramatically or uh, over a short amount of time, I see it. You know, I see a lot of young horses I'm working on who are very, very sore. And I think it's because no matter what you do, and I think it's because people truly do not have a concept of how long it takes to build the musculature of a horse. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about, too, in that context. Like, um, I would assume in some Western sports, you'd see a lot of it as well, especially with so. like high intensity, but fast work, like barrel racing, where you go in as hard as you can for 20, 30 seconds. Right. And then what happens after that? And like how many people I'm sure at the upper levels, people do, you know, walk their horses down afterwards or do a cool down. Right. Um, well, and that's actually a really good point. That's, I think one of the best, um, ways to avoid DOMS in your horse is not only massage therapy after a hard ride, but taking a long time to cool them out. Because keep in mind, delayed onset muscle soreness is caused by lymph. And the reason why it's collecting is because it doesn't have a pump. So what you need to do to move it is either exercise or massage. Those are basically the main two options. You can definitely, I mean, I think PEMF absolutely helps as well because it helps promote circulation. I think there's some other therapies like vibration therapy that might be like effective for that as well. Um, But those are you know, some of the ones that are, you know, most helpful. Right. Or like we talked about in the wrapping episode, some kind of standing wrap is supposed to have that effect. 
Yeah, it's not going to act on the muscles. It's going right. to act on the lower legs, but right. it's going to have it's a, a similar it. benefit to keep it up. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And I think like overall, like uh, it goes back to the idea of um, to s- keep your horse being slowly conditioned and slowly bringing them up the levels. And also there is there are times when muscle soreness is just going to be a part of your you and your horse's life, unfortunately, you know, just like any professional athlete, just like any athlete at any level, there are going to be days where you're sore, even if you work pretty slowly, you know, especially if you're wanting to basically get as far as you can in a short amount of time, you can still do it responsibly, but you may, you, you and your horse may end up with some muscular soreness, but what going back to Dr. Chuck's episode, um, when he talked about kind of the stair step theory of building fitness, I think Dom's can really you can kind of avoid suffering the worst of Dom's when like after your w- hardest workout of the week, your horse gets a day or two off. Totally. And I think that goes back to like a lot of what we talk about on this show, but on our social media as well is that we need to start treating horses like athletes. And we should also treat ourselves like athletes, even though that's not exciting and nobody wants to do it. And it's so boring to stretch and think about going to the gym and cross-training. Oh, God. But, you know, it is... It is important because, like, horses are athletes by nature. Like, they're constantly moving their bodies. And so the more that we can allow them to, to build that fitness in a organic and progressive way instead of, you know, the weekend warrior is a, is a tough one to talk about because there are a lot of people who the reality is they cannot make it to the barn during the week. But yeah. at that point, it's like for, for the fitness of your horse, do you have someone coming to work them for you or at least get them out and lunge them or... Yeah. And I mean, you know, we I want to do a lunging episode with you at some point because lunging is the way most people in the country are lunging is really scary to me. So I don't know that lunging would be the first thing I'd go to. Um, But I do think that you have to just be realistic about your goals, for example. You know, so if you have pretty high goals and aspirations of what you want to do, like basically if you don't want to do like the lowest levels of your sport, but I think you need to be realistic that you probably need help keeping your horse fit and out of fairness to them. If you don't have help, I think you need to be realistic about what you can achieve with your horse on the weekends. Um, That being said, there are some other things you can do to encourage your horse to be fit. I mean, I do think that a lot of horses have a pretty good baseline fitness if they're on a lot of turnout, especially if it's on a hill. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's, I love having horses in a really big pasture with a bunch of friends on a really big hill. I think their baseline fitness and just overall happiness and soundness is so much higher. I'm such a huge fan of hill and pole work. And I guess if you don't have hills, some places are just not, you know, like where I live in Texas, it is is not hilly. Um, But what we do to compensate for that is a lot of pole work. Yeah. Um, And, but it is. I mean, and it's true, like to your point about lunging, and that could be a whole other episode we we do. But it's like for me, pulling my horses out who are turned out 24-7 in a pasture, the way that I lunge them is different than I would if they were kept in a stall 24-7, where it's like you really need 10 to 15 minutes of hand walking if you're pulling them out of a stall to get that lymphatic fluid and um, 
what is it called? Synovial? What? No. What is it? Oh, synovial. Synovial fluid. fluid. Lanes, yes. yes. Well, I will caution you. I have had a lot of people comment on. I had, you know, for those of you who haven't seen them. Um, I have, I've, I used to, I had a series of posts a little while ago talking about how I see so many riders not hand walk their horse, um, leading up to lunging or even leading up to riding. Um, and I did have a lot of people say, well, if my horse has turned out, can I skip it? And I said, no, because you don't know if your horse was walking around. Most horses are standing either like, you know, especially if your horse has a really big, hay round hay bale oh yeah they're standing all day i mean they might walk around a little bit they might go play with your friends but you can't guarantee that your horse was had a nice working walk for 15 minutes before you went and got them from the pasture that's very true that is i mean i i don't want to walk around for 10 minutes either like it is it is it is time out of your day but the way i think of it is those 15 minutes of walking are very possibly preserving your horse's joints and saving you from thousands of dollars of joint injections. Well, and and maybe preventing your horse from going, you know, chronically lame at, you know, 19, 20, as opposed to some horses we see who are doing just fine well into their late 20s and, yeah. you know, 30s in some cases. Yeah. Which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And keep them competing into their 20s. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really cool to see. So the questions that I have remaining, I think you've given like a very clear explanation of DOMS versus fascial adhesions. I, my next questions would be more on the fascial adhesions, like what we do to treat those and where mm -hmm. we see them appear the most in horses mm -hmm. and also in riders. Um, we touch on that a little bit because I do think it's relevant, especially for riders. I'm sure there's areas of your body that you see more often in, or than not be impacted by fascial adhesions. Um, as a body worker for both people and horses. But is that treading into our next episode? I think that's starting to tread into our next episode. So, so make sure to stay tuned for our next episode, which is the where and the why of your horse's muscular soreness, where we go into the most common external factors that lead into your horse being sore and where that can manifest in their body. The last in the series, we will have what you can do at home um, to help your horse avoid muscular soreness or address a muscular soreness they may be facing. That both episodes are going to have a lot of really actionable advice, so definitely listen to them with a notepad and take some notes. Love that. Well, Can't wait. We'll be back for more soon. Thanks, um, Sally. Yeah, of course. Do we want to do our um, What Do You Not Buck With? Ooh. Ooh. Are, am I going to get asked? I would love to do the honors. <laughs> um, so, Maya, what is something in relation to muscle soreness that you do not buck with? I don't buck with applying a temporary bandage to muscular soreness when there's a more systemic issue. Mm -hmm. And we're going to really dig into that in the next episode. Exciting. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for having me today. It's always a lot of fun. You're the best. You are. <laughs> <laughs>
My mission at Freely Forward Body Work is to make equine massage accessible to any horse, no matter where you and your horse are in the world. If you're interested in learning more about my online catalog of courses designed to help you bond with your horse through the art of equine massage therapy, please check out the link in the show notes for more information. I'd love to teach you.